devoid of power. And I want to start off by telling the story of a Hungarian physician. I'm going to, for those of you who are fluent in Hungarian, I'm, I'm going to not do a good job with this name. His name is Ignaz Semmelweis. Ignaz Semmelweis. He's a Hungarian physician and he worked in labor and delivery. And the hospital that he worked in had two labor and delivery units and they weren't connected. But what he noticed was happening was something that he could not explain. In one of the labor and delivery units, the mortality rate of both mothers and their babies was 20 times more than the mortality rate of the other labor and delivery unit. And he couldn't give any explanation of this. He observed it. He tried to make sense of it. He could not figure out why one labor and delivery unit, 20 times more people died than in the other one until one day a light bulb clicked off. He realized that on one end of the labor and delivery unit where there was the really exaggeratedly high mortality rate, he realized that the other end of that unit, there were doctors there. And those doctors were performing autopsies on bodies that had died. And the doctors were going from those autopsies straight into the birthing rooms where mothers were giving birth. And they weren't washing their hands. There was no antiseptic being used. And after some observation and some research, he realized that the disease that killed the body that was being autopsied on was the disease that ended up killing all of these moms and their babies. And he discovered something, and this is early on in medicine. He discovered something that couldn't even be explained because we didn't have the power of a microscope to explain it. He was the first one to stumble upon what we now know and commonly call germs. And what are germs? They are these unseen things we can't see with our eye. And these unseen things were causing death and altering and affecting life. Now that is the spiritual life. That is an image of the spiritual world. We know there is this whole other world at play within the world in which we live and breathe and have our being right now, but we often can't see it. We don't have the eyes to be able to see what's going on, but just because we can't see it does not diminish the fact that it's real. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk about how the people of God can fight against the unseen things of this world. And listen, I have enough faith to believe that there are people in this room, in fact, many people in this room right now who need to hear these words. We're fighting against things we can't identify and recognize. And it's like when we describe to people what's going on, we say words like it feels like there's this cloud or there's this thing, but I can't break through it and I can't push past it. What I want to be able to do today through the power of God's written word is I want to be able to say to you there is a way to put all of that stuff to death. And I want to talk about that. 
And when the reality of this text that I'm about to read over us today, when the reality of this text sunk in for me, it was a game changer for me in my own spiritual life. I believe God is going to use it so that it is a game changer for you as well. All of that being said, would you stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's word, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. See to it. That nobody enslaves you with philosophy and foolish deception, which conform to the human traditions and the way the world thinks and acts, rather than Christ. All of the fullness of the deity lives in Christ's body. And you have been filled by him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not administered by human hands. The circumcision of Christ is realized in the stripping away of the whole self, dominated by sin. You were buried with him through baptism, raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead, because of the things you had done wrong, because your body wasn't circumcised, God made you alive with Christ and forgave all the things you had done wrong. He destroyed the record of the debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them and a triumphal parade. This is God's word for us this morning. You can be seated. If I was to pull the room this morning, and I I was to pull all of you all with this question, what is the cause and the cure for the biggest problem in your life? What is the cause and what is the cure? For the biggest problem in your life, most people would say, the cause for the biggest problem in my life is outside of me. The cure for that problem is inside of me. So if I was to pull the room and I was to say, hey, what's the cause of the biggest problem? What's the cure? You would say, hey, here's, here's the cause of the biggest problem. It's It's my boss. Listen, my boss is a jerk. I hate going to work every week. I cannot stand my boss. This is actually what Ben would say if you asked Ben. What the cause is the biggest problem. That's it's it's outside of me. Or you'd say, like, ah, it's my family. I've got all this family stuff that's swirling around me, and it's causing all of the largest problems in my life. The cause, the cause is outside of me. Or you'd say, like, it's finances. We get to the end of the month and there's never enough. We want to become people who are generous, but we can't break our spending or we're caught up in this debt. It's, we got the finance. It's causing problems. Those, those, the cause of the biggest problem is outside of me. That's what most of us would say. So then if I was to follow that up with, okay, what's the cure? So that's the biggest problem. The biggest problem is outside of you. What is the cure most of us would say something like, ah, I just need some more discipline. Right? That's an internal thing. I need more discipline in my life. Or, 
I just need to make better decisions. I need to handle myself better. I was to ask that question and poll the room, what's the biggest problem? Most of us would say, the cause is outside, the cure is inside. Now, listen, this is what's interesting. What the Bible has to say about all of that is exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. What Scripture consistently teaches from beginning to end is that the cause of the biggest problems in our life are inside of us. And the cure for those problems doesn't lie within us. The cure is outside. We think cause of the problem outside, cure inside. Bible consistently, the biblical worldview of the world and of our life consistently testifies to us that the cause of the problems in our life are not outside, it's inside. And the cure is not inside, the cure is outside. Some of y'all who have been around church for a while, you might know, know, know the name, um, Dr. Moody. Dr. Moody was once asked, what is the biggest problem that you face? And his response was, the biggest problem I face is the man in the mirror. The man in the mirror. And what he was testifying to is something that is absolutely correct. No one has ever lied to you more than you. No one has ever betrayed you more than you. No one has ever failed you more than you. The biggest problem that we face in our life is the man or the woman in the mirror. And until we own up to that, until we begin to understand that, we are slow to be transformed into the image of Jesus because if we misdiagnose the malady, we will misprescribe the solution. And Paul knows this. That's why he writes to the church in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says this. He says, See to it that no one enslaves you with philosophy and foolish deception, which conform to human traditions and the way the world thinks and acts, rather than Christ. And this is the agenda of the evil one. This is what the devil wants to do. The devil wants to use hollow and deceptive philosophy based upon what everybody else thinks. And he wants to use that to wage war on us every single minute of every single day. But here's the thing. The devil doesn't fight fair. The devil doesn't fight fair. He fights dirty. And here's what I mean by that. On the cross, Paul is quick to tell us in Colossians chapter 2, on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. And on the cross, when God is vindicated and is revealed as the world's one true king, what happens is that the power of sin and the power of death is forever broken. In other words, what Jesus is doing on his cross is he is disarming He is neutralizing the threat. He's disarming the power that has been used to enslave us. He takes the power away from from them. And and then then Paul says he does this, which is a step further. and, And it's beautiful and powerful and provocative. Paul says not only does he disarm 
And not only does he neutralize the power of evil through the cross of Jesus Christ, quote, he makes a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Let's say that you play sports. Let's pick a sport today. Looks like a lot of tennis players out there. Let's say you play tennis. Let's say I said to you, hey, friend, how was your tennis match last week? And you said, well, it was good. I won. And I would say, cool. But now let's say the next week I said to you, hey, friend, how was your tennis match? And let's say your reply was this. I made a public spectacle of that person. I disarmed them of any tennis ability that they ever had as I triumphed over them. What I would say to that is, whoa, whoa. That is not just I beat them. That is a humiliation. That is an exposing and a revealing of them for what they are. This is the football player on the football field lined up on the opposite side. It's usually a defensive player who's running their mouth and acting as if they are the world's best thing and you will never advance the ball beyond them. And they're taunting and they're taunting and they're taunting and your coach gets so tired of it. He calls a play designed to go directly at them and this is the fullback hitting the hole and trucking that guy, decleating him and then standing over the top of him and giving a little bit of a flex as you walk away. This is at your job. This is the person who talks and talks and talks and talks and wants the credit and wants the credit and wants the credit and it drives you so crazy that you get to the point where you ask them a very simple question in a very public meeting just so that everyone will know when they open their mouth they don't have anything worthwhile to say and you just kind of casually walking away. This is not just a defeat of when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He he didn't just defeat the devil and break the power of evil. The power of evil was humiliated and exposed for a farce. It was not just destroyed. It was ashamed. This is a revealing of the gods for what they are. Fake and false. This is Jesus saying to the devil, you act like you have some sort of special power, but you've been disarmed and defeated. It's a humiliation. But here's what we as followers of Jesus fail to realize, and we fail to realize this every day. Not only do we fail to realize that ultimately the devil has no power that can thwart us from the plan of God, but what we also fail to realize is that though the devil has been completely disarmed through the cross of Christ, he's not done, but this time he's not fighting fair. He's not fighting dirty. He's still active. And the way that he fights now is not by squaring up to us. Because he knows that within each follower of Jesus is a power at work in their life that he can't match. What he does 
is he fights dirty and he deceives and he tries to capture our mind and persuade our heart. He wants us to conform to human traditions and human philosophies as opposed to conforming to the reality of the love of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. He knows he can't win a fair fight, but he's not done fighting, so he plays dirty. And it is a war. Every single day, it's a war. But it's not a war in the way that we normally imagine a war. When we imagine a war, we imagine like tanks lined up on this side, opposing tanks lined up on this side, and there's some sort of like fair fight between powers that are relatively equal. We think of two equally matched armies slugging it out. We think of a war as two sides battling blow for blow. But it's not like that in a spiritual war. Because the elemental forces that are at work in the world, the power and the schemes of the enemy, they can't match the power of God. There's a power differential there. They've been defeated and humiliated through the cross of Christ. So the only kind of war they can engage in is different than we imagine. It's not two equally matched forces squaring up. Instead, it's what like military strategists call an asymmetrical war. And in an asymmetrical war, you don't go straight at each other. In fact, you don't even meet the enemy on the battlefield. Instead, this is what you do. You flood the country of your enemy with misinformation. You hack. You try to spark insurrection. You take over media. You insert false narratives in the culture. It's dirty. It's like your little brother who knows that he can't beat you in a fair fight, so he bites and scratches and twists things that shouldn't be. It's dirty, but it's still war. It's not tanks squaring off. It's way more sinister. It's persuading hearts and changing minds. In fact, there's a brilliant book written on this. It's called A War in 140 Characters. And in that book, the author says that war is no longer what we thought it was. It's no longer, I'm going to take your territory. Instead, it's, I'm going to control the narrative. And the author goes on to say that even if you control the territory, you have to control the narrative. Because if you lose control of the narrative, you lose control of the territory. And this is how this plays out in real time today around the world. How it plays out is that nations and countries have figured out we're never going to invade countries like America or Germany or France. It's just not going to happen. Their military technology is far above what we could ever do, but we would still love to knock them down a couple notches. So we can't wage war square up, but what we can do is deception that creates confusion. So did you know today, tonight, nations in opposition to our own now have the ability to know your personal individual fears and to play off of them? Maybe you are afraid of losing your job, and they know that. They know that fear. How do they know that? Because you typed into Google at one point in time, What if I lose my job? 
and they know that you're most afraid of losing your job Thursday night at 11 p.m. because that's when you most often type that phrase into Google. When, what happens if I lose my job? And they want to wage war against you. And they want to deceive you in order to confuse you. So what do they do? They send you a direct message on Twitter or on Instagram, custom tailored for you, Thursday, 11 p.m. That says something sinister and crazy like illegal immigrants are moving into your country and they're coming to take your job. In a very similar way, this is what the forces of evil do. They don't have a military that can match the power of God's army. But they're going to come take your territory by deceiving your mind, persuading your heart. They're waging this deceptive information warfare campaign against you. And the way that they plan to take us captive is through this deceptive philosophy. And this means a handful of things for us. It means, first of all, that what the devil wants us most to think is that this is peacetime. That we live in a time of peace. And I'm not talking military stuff anymore. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your soul. The devil wants you to think that culture at large is neutral. That the forces at play in the work of the world aren't deceiving you every single day. It wants you to think that you're at peace. Because what happens during peacetime? We're less vigilant. We're less prepared. We're less serious. And so what the devil and what the forces of evil really want to do is they know they can't come at the people of God head on and fight fair, square up, face to face. Instead, what they'd like for you to do is to relax and to get comfortable, to start to feel really at home in this world, to begin to put in deep roots in the systems and the structures of this world and convince yourself that this place has no other agenda. But what God wants us to do is to be alert and to be vigilant and to be on guard and to recognize that our lordship or that that our citizenship is according to Jesus as Lord and not according to any of the other systems in the world. And to realize that he has a mission and a purpose for for, for him. And sometimes that mission and that purpose lines up with the culture at large. And when it does, we give thanks to God. But oftentimes the mission of God for the people of God causes us to move in a way of God. And that way of God happens to move in a little bit different than the way that the world is going. But when we're convinced that it's peacetime, we just kind of float according to the ways of the world as opposed to recognizing the purpose and the power at work through the people of God to head in the direction of God in this world. Listen, every single day is an opportunity for us. And the opportunity is to grow to become more like Jesus or the opportunity for us is to grow away and to lose our faith. And the reality is there's only two choices at play in this world. And what God wants more than anything else is for his people to realize that there's no power there anymore because the power has been put to death through the cross of Jesus Christ and it has no claim over us. So instead we can stand up fight the good faith, resist the devil, and he'll flee so that we can be formed 
to become more like Jesus. The devil wants you to think you're at peace, but you're not. It's a fight, and it's a struggle to become more and more and more like Jesus. But the second thing it means is this. Often when the Bible talks about this, the Bible talks about the flesh and the spirit. And there's a way of the flesh, and the way of the flesh produces all sorts of manner of things that will lead us to destruction. And the spirit produces something too. And what the spirit produces, the Bible calls fruit. It's stuff like peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. And against those things, there is no kind of law of condemnation. It's this struggle that Paul often talks about between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And the only solution to that kind of a war that is found within ourselves, the only solution to that is to put that thing, those works of the flesh, to death. Through the cross of Jesus Christ to allow the cross to crucify those things. So that what emerges out of their death is fruit that only God can produce. Here is how you know if your life is aligning with the fruit of the Spirit or if your life and your heart is aligning with the works of the flesh. You ask. You ask. It's really hard to self-diagnose, you know. Sometimes if you get a headache, you get on WebMD, like let's say you've had a headache and now all of a sudden it throbs like down here too, right? Maybe you can feel like a little bit of something. So you get on WebMD and you type in like your symptoms. My head hurts and I can feel something moving around in there. And you know what could be like, hey, you're stressed out and you need to go to bed, or drink some more water. That's all, all, just by the way, that is my solution for every problem in the world. Just drink more water. My wife will tell you that is absolutely the case. That when I, whenever anything is wrong with anyone, what I say to them is just drink a bunch of water. <laughs> but whatever it is, all of a sudden you type that sucker into WebMD and like you literally have hours left to live. You know, you have hours left to live. You need to start saying your goodbyes. Call in the family because it's, it's all going to die. Your life is going to expire because you typed your symptoms into WebMD. What is going on there? Like, you can't self-diagnose. Like, you're not a doctor. You don't know. You know, you think you know, but you, you don't know. And there might have been one time in your life where you actually self-diagnosed and so now you think like you don't need the medical degree because, listen, you figured it out. That one time you actually had strep throat when the thing said you had strep throat. Right? Ah! I say all that to say the same thing is very true with the condition of our hearts. Like, you have to be able to foster friendships and relationships with someone who can look you in the eye and tell you the truth. You need someone who will say to you, everywhere you go, there's drama. Everywhere you go, there's drama. It doesn't matter what environment you're in. It's just always drama. And what you might want to attribute that to, like a personality thing, that could also be like a little bit of God calling and leading to you and saying, hey, let's turn that into something that like produces fruit. Or you need someone who can look you in the eye and can be like, listen, you can't follow through to save your life. 
You start something that's great. You never complete a thing. You just can't follow through. You need someone who can look you square on and say, I love you so much. But there is this part of your life that is extinguishing your life. And listen, not to get too creepy or or weird or whatever, but I really do believe that that's like the germs, that is the germs of the way of the world infecting us and pulling us away from the way of God in this world. And it's leading us and pulling us into places that are harmful to us. The only way to get rid of this battle between the flesh and the spirit is to allow the cross of Jesus Christ to crucify that thing and to be raised to new life in Christ. This is why when Paul is talking about this in the book of Colossians and the letter in chapter 2 there, what he says is he starts talking to them about their baptism. Like, you've been baptized into this thing. And when you were baptized, those things were put to death. And you've been raised to new life. And you are a whole new creation. Because resurrection is not just taking something that is kind of broken and tinkering around with it so now it's kind of fixed and kind of works. Resurrection is a new creation out of nothing. What emerges from the tomb on that first Easter Sunday is not some sort of broken life that's been revived. What emerges out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday is someone who was dead but has been made alive and is a completely new creation. And what Paul is saying is that as we become followers of Jesus, that very same thing happens to us. It's not like we're just made a little bit better or we become incrementally more like God. No, we put to death the things of the flesh. And we are raised to new life in Christ. The powers of evil are real. The schemes of the devil, though, are not to take you head on. It's to deceive you. To change your mind. To persuade your heart. And he plays dirty. He wants you to think that this is peacetime. It's not. And what he wants you to think is that struggle between flesh and spirit is just something you have to cope with for the rest of your life. But thanks be to God, Paul lays it clear for us. Put that thing to death. You don't have to be enslaved to it anymore. Jesus has come not just to make your life incrementally better. He's come to make you alive and to give you new life as your old life is put to death.